Carlos, tell us or the listeners a bit more about yourself. We uh, we, we conditioned uh, Nico joining Bitcraft on him uh, letting me do a publicity run on the podcast. So I'm here uh, as as a as a prize. <laughs> Hello there, listener, and welcome to Roundtable 22 of the Metacast. I'm your host, Nico, today, and I'm joined by Aaron Bush and Carlos Pereira. In this episode, we are discussing, first, Facebook and, or Meta, what should I say? I don't know anymore. The second topic, we're going over uh, some of the earnings that came out uh, over the past week. And then finally, um, we're talking about play-to-earn games and I'm going to try and make a case why they don't necessarily have to be fun. They can actually be not fun. Um, so yeah, that's what we're doing today. Uh, and as you probably heard, we have a new name on the show. As, as, as you will know, I recently joined Bitcraft and there Carlos is uh, my close colleague. I, I, look, I talk with him about uh, crypto gaming deals, uh, work with him and... Yeah, I, I thought it'd be fun to have his, him on the show. So, uh, so yeah, Carlos, tell us or the listeners a, a bit more about yourself. We uh, we, we condition uh, Nico joining Bitcraft on him uh, letting me do a publicity run on the podcast. And so I'm here <laughs> uh, as as a as a prize. No, just kidding. I mean, look, we've been uh, we've been uh, long fans of uh, of Nico on the podcast, and it's nice to meet you, Aaron. Um, so I'm Carlos. I've been part of the Bitcraft team uh, officially since May. Um, I've been part of the bigger Bitcraft family probably for the first for the last couple of years or three years. Um, these guys were my mentors and my friends, and we co-invested and we sat on boards together. Um, and I think the last two years of my career has just been one long interview to convince Bitcraft to let me join. Um, and so when I finally, uh, when the opportunity finally came along, I obviously jumped with both feet and excited to be here. Um, background as an investor, did PE and growth and private credit, um, very much that TradFi um, uh, uh, upbringing. Uh, eventually ran a games vertical um, in my previous uh, uh, company, Eldridge, a $40 billion investment holding company, uh, where I helped uh, lead the, the gaming investments, a bunch of Series Seed and Series A and some, some growth and whatnot, Epic, Cloud9, um, a bunch of other names. Um, I spent a year at Venn focusing on content and strategy. Um, and then, as I said, Bitcraft since May, where um, I joined expecting to do a lot of traditional creator economy and uh, gaming content stuff. Um, and uh, I've been fortunate that as we grow as a platform, uh, the 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 world of games just keeps getting broader and it, it lets us flex our muscles into different areas. And especially with the, the Web3 stuff now, um, I have gone um, quite deeply into it and have been having a blast uh exploring this uh this opportunity nice and uh what is what is currently exciting you specifically in web3 what what are you looking into or uh what are you super excited for um well i'm excited for a lot of the discovery that i think we still have to to make in terms of how games are being developed how communities are being built right and like that's not even me making a statement of like Yes, I'm sure X or Y will work, but rather seeing all that innovation and being excited to see people, for example, trying to build games backwards, right? Like like loot, for example, starting the game at a completely different point of where you'd usually start a game. Um, I'm excited about games that um, have very deep economies that, you know, the type of stuff we've seen before, um, but now works significantly better because of... Um, 
you know, that economy being liquid and all that. Um, I'm excited for the emergence of uh, platforms that sit on top of games, like, for example, the YGGs of the world that are unlocking labor and all that. Um, so I just think that there's a lot of fantastic innovation in the space sort of everywhere. And it's um, it's just amazing to see it develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I fully agree. All right. Uh, Aaron, what's new with you? Not a whole lot, Nico. Uh, every day just feels like a grind lately. I feel like I was, it was just yesterday that we were recording the last episode. Um, yeah, pretty much, but yeah. you know, it's earnings season, a lot's going on in the industry right now. So just trying, trying my best to keep up with all the things. Yeah. Since I, since I joined Bitcraft, um, people ask me like, how's it going? And I, I found my, my new answer that I tell them and it is, I've, I've never had so much fun working so hard. So, uh, so that's pretty much it. Sums up my my day to day currently, which is why I'm also slightly less prepared than I usually am, which you might start hearing. Uh, so sorry for that. Apart from that, so one note, like PSA. So we're just talking about Web three and how excited we are for that. Um, I've been telling everyone I know that they should listen to Tim Ferriss's recent podcast. Um, it's with Naval Ravikant and Chris Dixon, and it is about you know Web three and everything it promises, and it is phenomenal. Um, three intelligent guys, especially Naval. I'm like I'm I'm like a huge fanboy. Um, they're brilliant, and I really love that episode. Um, if you're still not convinced, give it a listen and and see if if they might be able to you know change your mind. All right. That said, let's uh, let's dive straight in with the news. So last week, really funny, um, the bold prediction about the metaverse that Aaron made was: I think metaverse is going to be the information superhighway of the the internet, and um, so no one's going to be talking about the metaverse because that's too broad a term, and everyone's going to have used it. Um, and so <laughs> at that point, like literally the same day, Facebook decides to change their name, or at least the holding company name. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, it was uh, it was pretty interesting uh, to, to see, yeah. you know, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, announcement. I don't know if that helps my case or worsens it. To be honest, that uh, metaverse as a term is going to be something that people won't use anymore. Either like everybody, either this will get everyone more serious about it, um, and it'll just become more part of the lingo, or everyone's going to start shying away from wanting to use Facebook's branding. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think the second part, honestly, like that, that's my opinion. Like uh when I when I look at at my 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 younger sisters, so I have three sisters and the two youngest ones, like they they're not even on Facebook anymore and 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 Facebook is is like literally where our parents hang out um and 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 show, you know, pictures of cats basically. Uh yep. that that's what happens there. So yep. I'm I'm pretty like I feel like uh this this is this might be the undoing of the the metaverse term, and uh, and and Machu Ball might be, you know, <laughs> not not very happy. I think um, I think Facebook leaned into Meta because it's a term that's slowly permeating and getting more popular around the you know institutional capital and uh, traditional finance sectors, and so like I I think between the the gamers and the people at more of the edge of the thing, there's already a certain saturation or fatigue with the word meta um, that I, I think Facebook is incrementally um, adding to it. But to mm. be fair, like I'm I'm so tired of uh, hearing the word metaverse already, which sucks because like, 
you know, I feel like two years ago, like that's all I wanted to sort of frame things as and huge Matt Ball fan and, and whatnot. And like that word has just gotten taken up so much. Um, I think it still means a lot. I think it's still like a great, um, it's a great term and it's, you know, in the end of the day, it's jargon, right? And jargon exists to efficiently uh, communicate ideas. And I think that in our world, like that jargon is still very effective. Um, but I certainly think that, you know, Facebook isn't necessarily coming out of nowhere and, and, and driving some negativity to the name, but rather um, leaning into it precisely because the name has gone into a certain institutional direction that works for both their audience and is the same reason why it has worked less and less for ours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aaron, anything to add on, on like the, the reasons why they decided for this, this name change? Um, well, I think it's probably important to remember that a name change in and of itself is meaningless. We survived Alphabet, and we'll survive this too. Changing a name has nothing to do with underlying value. Um, that said, I mean the name change, like it does represent a new direction for the business, and I, you know, actually agree that pivoting focus is probably a good long-term call for them because of the issues that the core business faces today. Um, and so, you know, Facebook's core business. Um, faces increasing competition um, while also being held back from social-related M&A. It faces an, an unfriendly um, and, frankly, pretty stupid regulatory environment in a lot of senses. Um, plus, the internet is changing. Um, and so, you know, I do think it is logical that Facebook would change its focus and use that as an opportunity to begin changing the narrative and, therefore, hopefully the perception around the company in the process, too. And the presentation that the company put on was its attempt to show that Facebook is still focused on innovating and building, not just protecting its social assets. Um, and it's also the kind of pivot that really only a founder CEO can pull off. And Meta now is the only company of that size where that's still the case. So um, it makes sense to me why they're doing this. Um, you know, whether it's the name is Meta or something else, like that doesn't really matter, but changing focus right now feels, uh, it feels like a pretty smart move. Obviously the devil is in the details, but at a, at a high level, I, I see where they're coming from and I respect it. Hmm. And do you agree with the move? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, um, the first part of the move that makes a lot of sense is purely from a branding perspective. Um, of all of the products that sit inside of that or inside of that box, like Facebook is the least interesting one of them, uh, right? Like I think WhatsApp and Instagram and whatnot, Oculus even, um, you know, I think unfortunately um, the Facebook product, um, at least like my personal experience with it is like today, like I still check Facebook every day um, because I need to know whose birthday it is. Uh, but that's mm. basically it, right? Like the only, like if some, if, if, if my calendar launches some type of, software that I can just migrate all of my Facebook birthdays into it, like I would probably stop using Facebook. It's just become like a, a birthday checker. Um, you know, and I think that in the news, even though you have a lot more probably disinformation, especially internationally floating through WhatsApp, because it's just used internationally so much more than here, right? Like you think about the the negative narrative around political misinformation and all of that, like I'm decently confident, although I have no data to back this up, that WhatsApp probably if it is a bigger contributor to that stuff. Um, it's just that it happens internationally, not domestically. Um, and in domestically where they're getting the pressure from the regulators, like that pressure is very much attached to the Facebook product. And so I think it's important for them 
to uh, de-link to some extent the, the, the brand of the holding company with the brand of this product so that they can allow the product to go its course while new, you know, other products that they already have come through. Um, in terms of focus, you know, of like actually leaning into the metaverse, um, I think that Facebook was one of the big first plays of um, social connectivity and, and people sort of interacting digitally, and it still is, right? I mean, um, I think that they've they've they 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 were the early pioneers of. I think a lot of the underpinnings of how we think about the metaverse today of communication and shared experiences and all of that with people who are total strangers or half strangers or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, now, how they focus on that, like if it's actually, you know, if they deliver on, call it the 3D virtual worlds or Oculus or whatever it may be, I think we can, you know, I, I have questions and concerns. Um, but I don't think that anything they're doing is um, philosophically inconsistent with where they come from. And I think that it is an important branding step just given the difference between what the holding company has and what the product means and increasingly goes towards in culture. What do you think, Aaron? Um, for one, I think that their social assets are probably underrated. I think that a lot of times, especially, you know, us in like, you know, developed countries, we sort of extract or extrapolate our own like uses of these platforms to like how we kind of perceive the entire system. But I think it's important to remember that Facebook or Meta now across all of their platforms has about 2 billion, you know, active users. And that number has actually gone up like even recently, um, which is crazy. And that really just shows like the power of these platforms and really just like how many people are roped into this ecosystem. So that's something that we just need to remember. And I know a lot of people have been critical about just Facebook in general and now Meta and like their new direction. But I actually, um, you know, while even though a lot of people are kind of laughing it off, I actually think what they're doing is like a net positive, you know, for the company, but also humanity because they're willing to invest tens of billions of dollars into R&D for foundational technologies that will usher in the next generation of computing and the internet. And that's something that very, very few companies are capable of doing. Startups can't do that. Crypto projects can't do all of that. So it's good that Meta is. And maybe that's a controversial take, but um, I feel like it's true. But I also feel like people misunderstand Meta's intentions, um, maybe in like a couple key ways. And so um, just to kind of dig more into the meat of it, um, you know, I think many people assume that Facebook, as the owner of a next-gen uh, distribution platform, will be as bad as Apple is now. I actually disagree with that take, and I think that Meta will actually be a better steward because it knows what it's like to be limited by other gatekeepers. Zuckerberg has recently said um, that step one of the metaverse is to build the underlying technology. But the next step is to grow the GDP of the metaverse, things like digital goods, clothing, experiences, et cetera, as much as possible. And the best way to do that is to have the fees be as low and favorable as possible to creators. So Meta gets that. And creators who want to leverage the 2 billion people on the company's platforms should really like that. That still is a really, really powerful force in the world. Um, second... I, you know, everyone assumes Facebook is going to be a closed ecosystem. And I think what's important to remember is that centralization and decentralization 
um, it's not binary. It exists on a spectrum and how different parts of broader ecosystems interact with each other also exists on a spectrum. So yes, Meta will be more centralized than what's going on in crypto. However, Zuckerberg has said like he's very focused on creating greater interoperability and intelligently tackling open standards on day one. Meta is very aware, um, same as it's been in social, that it won't be alone. So it's not going to replace Unity and Roblox and Epic Games, etc. It's going to live alongside them. And it's important um, to work with everyone on pushing forward more open standards. And they have a lot of influence in being able to do things like that. And in a recent um, Stratechery interview, Zuckerberg um, also said that building certain integrations with decentralized apps in the in the crypto community is going to be important for them to do like towards the very beginning. And it's also just important to remember that Oculus already supports sideloading. So everyone's concerns about Facebook controlling everything and remaining a fully closed walled garden are wrong, I think. We'll have to see how that you know exactly plays out in the details, but I think um, it might actually surprise people to the positive. Um, and then lastly, a lot of people are concerned that in order to join the broader metaverse stuff, meta builds, you'll need a Facebook ID. After all, um, that's what you needed uh, to log into Oculus. I think you still might need that to log into Oculus right now. And I think the team has learned from that feedback there and gotten smarter. So even though um, we'll probably see more interoperability of identity systems at the data and infrastructure level, um, both like within meta, but also like potentially just like like cross companies too. At the user level, um, it will probably no longer need to be your Facebook ID for everything. And Zuckerberg has said that he knows people aren't going to have the same identity everywhere. So they hope to branch. So I so I guess like if they hope to branch beyond social, such as into the enterprise um, with like Horizon Workrooms and Oculus, and just recognizing that like VR, AR, you'll use it for for more than social, that's one of the first things that will have to change because no one's going to want to log into work stuff um, on Facebook IDs. That's crazy. So um, in general, I actually, you know, maybe it's controversial. I don't know. But I actually like a lot of what I've heard coming from Meta so far. And I was a little surprised by that. It's not perfect. And I still have hesitations. But the biggest concerns that I've heard thrown around appear to be addressed with at least some amount of thoughtfulness. So uh, that's kind of my general take on all of that. Carlos, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think um, it's important to recognize that when Facebook pushed out their, uh, the, you know, with Crypto Libra, right, two or three years ago, whenever that was, um, even though there were issues with implementation and maybe the basket of currencies was just too broad and like uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jared at Tribe, um, basically was doing some back of the envelope math around um, the relationship between uh, Facebook penetration in a, a developing country and the odds that implementation of Libra would crash their currency if like that ended up being a better reserve currency, like whatnot. Like there was all sorts of crazy things around the implementation when it comes to how they thought about it. Like it was an awesome thought experiment, right? So I tend to agree that Facebook is a thoughtful organization. Like I think Mark, you know, is a, is a brilliant person with like a lot of track record. Um, that said, my concern um, is twofold. Like one, um, I think that they're savvy enough to not come out now and say, yeah, we're going to be totally centralized in, in closed garden. But I, I think my experience at least 
with that ecosystem has been that it has tended to be more centralized than not. And um, I certainly think that the first steps that we see out of Facebook are more more likely to be um, on layers than dApps, for example. Um, and it is on building their own um, layer infrastructure and things like that. I, you know, I think that to the extent that they want to roll out NFTs or anything like that, like you know, which which I expect them to. Again, I think that they're likely going to be trying to centralize as much as possible. It's just that they they're smart enough to know that there has to be some linkage to ETH or Solana or whatever it is so that they can pull liquidity into their system. But I don't know. I don't expect them to be making it easy for you to pull liquidity out and I, I think they'll certainly try to, to limit the activity to their chain um, whatever whatever however they do that as um, and you know my other big concern with thinking about a world in which Facebook is innovating in how they build is um, it, it feels like it's been a while since you've seen them come out with something original um, that has been built in-house and has been truly been innovative right like the, the majority of the Facebook products that I interact with and still very much love um, are acquired products. Um, and so the notion that they'll go out and hire 10,000 people or 20,000 people and put all that budget, like, yes. Um, but when you read, whether it's the Wall Street Journal reporting or whatever it is, like there's all sorts of narratives around the bureaucracy and the concern and people leaving, etc. And it feels like um, their capacity to, to innovate on the building side isn't what it used to be. And, and that's why a lot of the hits there have been acquired versus built. Although, of course, they've built on top of them with internal resources. Um, that I feel like there's more data against them than for them, even though, like, theoretically, yes, I agree with everything. It just doesn't feel like it's played out that way in practice so far. And so I don't understand what's different now because it's still a founder-led company. Um, and so I think that whatever they do is going to have a big fingerprint of Zuckerberg with his genius and his flaws. And I think that the data around his flaws is, you know, pretty substantive when it comes to trying to innovate on the building side recently. I think, um, just, just quickly, I think, I think you might be right. And they've done a lot of copying of social features and things. I think where it might be a bit different is that a lot of this right now is being driven by hardware innovations more so than software, uh, just like feature innovations. And, um, in that sense, they they're really the only ones not the only ones but like a very like of a very small group who is able to be able to fund those kinds of innovations and a lot of it is just um like it is just building a large enough team with enough resources to kind of push forward these economies of scale of hardware etc um so i think and and i guess i would say too that they are pretty hamstrung with their ability to acquire and social, but I almost wonder that if they can change their focus successfully to other like non-social dimensions, if they'll have the ability to also continue uh, to acquire. And their acquisition track record is pretty phenomenal of how they've been able to do that. Um, there's a chance, maybe, I don't know, that um, they'll be able to do some of that in this new realm. Although how that falls you know, with regulators, I have no idea. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I just lean a little bit more optimistic than you, Carlos, that they'll be able to build, a, like innovate enough to like build a solid foundation in this space to the point where then there can like, there'll be like a larger ecosystem around them of people building on top of their platform, connecting it to other things going on in other ecosystems. Um, and it's not going to be everything. It's just going to be like a piece again and like live aside all of these other things that are going on in web three 
Um, but when you have 2 billion people <laughs> actively using your, um, your services and you have the capital from those 2 billion people, um, you can do some pretty crazy things um, to at least build the foundation. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty to go for sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, where do you see, um, uh, Meta's revenue model or business model evolve in, in let's say the next five years currently they're mainly selling eyeballs. What do you expect that to be in the, in the metaverse that you, you see them building? I, I think, um, I think it'll actually be kind of similar to what we see with social, um, kind of the future of Facebook and Instagram and stuff like it's uh, becoming more video first, but also becoming more commerce first. And so ads are always going to be important to those businesses, but it's much more about turning like ecosystems into economies. And so I think we'll probably see the same thing go on more in these metaverse ambitions. Um, you know, step one is just building the technology and that could take a while. Um, but step two, I mean, he said is just like, it's to increase the GDP of their metaverse ambitions, which is really just to empower other people to, you know, build businesses, sell things, et cetera, to their massive audiences. I'm sure ads will have to do with some of it. Um, but I think it'll be more economy driven, but of course it's so early <laughs> to know what exactly that'll be, what exactly they're going to build and even when exactly that will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you that I think it's probably on the, um, on the commercial and uh, like the digital goods, whatever it may be, but like on the you know transactional side and starting with the infra makes sense, right? I mean, look, uh, what uh, TikTok has done with Immutable, I think, is indicative of some of the places where you can start, you know, doing these things, um, right? Where there they're commercializing memes and whatnot. Um, I think you know the the meme power of the Instagram platform, for example, right? It looks like there's a lot that can be done there. Um, there's a lot with creators selling digital goods um, that can be done. Um, and I think it is being done in a lot of different places. And so I think um, that increase of GDP um, is most likely to come through enabling better transaction flow and monetization and all of that um, than it is with using Web3 as some sort of hook to get more advertisers in, right? Like I think the the, the hooks that are being built on the advertising side are more, um, for example, pushing the short form video into the, uh, on Instagram, right? Where, you know, like uh, I feel like now every time I open a short, depending on what it is actually, but the vast majority of shorts that I open, they're serving me an ad before it, right? And so I've certainly like, it's like, okay, like you guys are clearly pushing a bunch more inventory now through the the short form video stuff. Um, and so I think like the ad business is is more of the traditional web too and just increasing engagement and increasing the amount of um, videos you can push through uh, just because there's more inventory there. And then on the on the call it more meta side and, and, and whatnot, I think it's, it's financial infra. Um, but then it goes all the way back to the the whole Libra discussion, right? Like last time they came out with financial infra um, was really, really cool. Like that's an awesome white paper. I, you know, like awesome philosophical project, very difficult delivery and obviously didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. To, uh, to finalize this, this part of our, of, of the, of the show, um, we, we don't have any bold predictions prepared. So I was thinking, um, Let's let's make a bold prediction about Facebook MAUs in five years, higher or lower than today, and and why? What do you think, Aaron? As in, like the core Facebook platform? No, I, I meant like Meta as a whole. In five years? Um, yeah. Hmm. 
uh, I'll guess lower, but maybe not like that much lower. Like it'll, I maybe even around where it is today. I would guess. Okay. What do you think, Carlos? I will say uh, a stable, a stable to slow decline with the caveat that in emerging markets, as they continue to push the financial infra on WhatsApp, for example, the the, the Venmo feature of, of WhatsApp, right, of just uh, seamless transactions and whatnot, um, I think that if that hits and if there's a connection to the um, financial infra on the, the Web3 side um, and they're able to distribute financial infra branded as meta right like if those maus all of a sudden become just like people transacting with their tech i think it could be very different just because i think they can still distribute you know financial infra via that like again via whatsapp and whatnot um but when i think about the core social media product right like how we interact with facebook today again outside of, of you know whatsapp which itself is also i think declines versus telegram for you know a bunch of reasons we can go into um I think that, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't see how they'd be able to um, to do too much there, mm-hmm. especially if they can't buy it. Yeah. Uh, what I would add is um, I actually do think the business is going to be bigger, though. So even if um, people, if there are slightly less people and engagement kind of fluctuates, um, I do think that them shifting not necessarily away from an ad model, but adding on more of like this economic element um, that just like empowers people through marketplaces and things like that. Um, I I think that is going to be a net positive for the company as a whole. Um, and we'll continue to probably drive revenue to some degree. Mm-hmm. Where, where I'm most uncertain is how this like actually translates <laughs> into like the metaverse stuff. Like, yeah, who knows what Oculus that's going to look like in five years or any like new thing that they build or buy. Who Who has any clue? Um, but at least on the the core social products, I have a feeling that um, people are going to start changing how they view like the purpose of those those products. Even if you look back five years ago, um, like I don't even think like Snap Snapchat like IPO'd yet, and I don't, and I think it was even around that time that like I'm not even sure like Instagram and Facebook had like quite copied the stories model and implemented that in and so that feels so long ago that five years from now like just like how we think about the features today the feature set a lot of that is going to be different but the economic opportunity that these platforms will be able to provide people will probably be higher i think people underestimate um, this company to be honest i feel like there's been so much negative perception um just built around like everything um, from like regulatory stuff to antitrust stuff, which doesn't really make sense to now like saying that, you know, Facebook is like tobacco. I think a lot of these things fall apart. Um, but under the hood, uh, the economic opportunity of 2 billion people being engaged um, is going to be pretty interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. That was very interesting. Thanks for that, guys. Um, let's uh, let's move on to topic number two, which is earnings. We are talking a bit about Sony, Microsoft, Ubisoft, and Activision. And if anything is interesting, we might stick there. So let's uh, let's go through the list. So first, Sony. Um, Sony reported that they sold 3.3 million PS5s in the in the in the past quarter. Um, they saw a 27% boost in gaming revenue. But their operating income decreased compared to last quarter. 
Uh, so the reasons they gave for declining rev uh, declining income as opposed to uh, like uh, increasing revenue was that their first party titles dropped significantly from 10.5 million units sold to 7.6 million. Um, the PS4 units that they sold were down from 500k to 200k. Um, and then also, I guess, uh, they had to price below manufacturing costs for a lot of their devices because of the chip shortages. Aaron, you are uh, our public company expert. So uh, what were your thoughts when you saw this? Yeah, uh, I mean, those numbers aren't surprising. Um, and we're, we'll talk about Xbox, too. And a lot of this, it feels pretty predictable, um, just knowing where we are in the console cycle. Um, it makes sense that things are up because new consoles are out and everybody wants one. Um, but it mm -hmm. also makes sense that income is down a bit just because PS5s primarily are loss leaders right now. And mm -hmm. over, you know, over the console generation timeline, the costs that go into these things tends to drop as, you know, technology improves and, you know, economics scale up, um, but just seeing where we are today, it's not surprising. I don't think we can extrapolate too much um, from that. And I, I, it does feel like just because of supply constraints and, and such that we're not like this current generation, even though it's like a year old at this point, which is crazy. It doesn't feel like it's quite hit its stride in terms of like first party games. But starting next year with like the God of War sequel and, you know, Horizon Forbidden West, I think um, like that that's going to change too. Um, and if anything, like with any of these like companies and earnings, like it, it's like worth looking at what the numbers were for the past quarter, but it's always like, what's more important is just figuring out like the context around it and what it means for the mm. future. And, and in this case, like the first party content, like continues to be like the main story here uh, with Sony and they continue to invest in it. This quarter, they acquired two more studios, Fire Sprite and Bluepoint Games, um, which uh, is two more on top of like two other studios they acquired earlier this fiscal year. So they acquired four um, new first party studios for for the year, which brings their total up to 16. So over this past year, Sony has increased their like internal studio um, capabilities roughly by like a third. And it, that really just goes to show that like their strategy, <laughs> like it has been, and it continues to be just investing as much as they can into like great first party content to ensure that more people want playstations than Xboxes to like really solidify their lead, um, in consoles. Like they're extremely like 100% like console focus. They still like port some to PC eventually. And like, they're talking about mobile on the fringes, but really everything revolves around building that first party content to get as many people interested in PlayStation as possible. Once they're interested, you know, they'll convert a lot of those people to like the monthly paying subscribers and through like the content and like the subscriptions is how they make the vast majority of their money. And hardware is like secondary nowadays. Um, it, it'll just take time for this generation to click, but basically the strategy that they've been successfully executing on in the past is what they're continuing to do. So there really isn't too much of a change there. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it's still very, very hard to get a PlayStation 5, right? Um, 
you know, most places. Um, and for you to truly enjoy that 4K, whatever, you also should be pairing it with the right kind of hardware, which a lot of people just don't have yet, especially, you know, rest of the world, um, where, you know, like a PlayStation 4 is still like a, a PS4 Pro is still a fantastic deal. Um, if you're not ready to invest in, you know, some OLED 4K TV and sort of go all the way with everything. And then on top of that, it's games, right? I mean, I, like I, I have a PlayStation 5, um, and there hasn't, like, I've played a lot of PS4 games on PS5, which is never a good feeling. Cause I'm like, well, like, why did I pay two times the, the list price on this thing to get it early and not have like all the games that I want? Um, you know, a lot of expectation around, for example, cyberpunk, uh, 2077, the patch coming out and like, uh, I don't know. Um, so even like the, the, the patching, I think has been a little bit weak for games to perform, you know, there, um, ghost of Tsushima is one where I think they did it extremely well one of the most beautiful games I've ever played. Um, Demon's Soul was a, was a really awesome game to come out with there early on. It's just a bit of a niche choice in terms of like, you know, it's hard and it's different and whatnot. Um, but that's certainly like a place where I have been a little bit um, disappointed, call it as a PS5 owner. It's just been like, I can get, I can get that it's going to take a while for first party titles or even for, you know, some of these next gen titles. Like I'm super excited for Elden Ring and things like that. Um, but the like patches are slow too, right? And there's just a limited number of things that that you can play right now that are worth the hardware or you know worth everything that goes with it, right? Because like when I got it, I also got a new TV and I like I set up the whole thing. And for most of the stuff, like it, you know, the PS4 Pro still delivers just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Aaron, you wanna you wanna start or you wanna do a quick intro or give us some numbers from uh, Microsoft and then perhaps talk about the differences you see between uh, the two con- console giants? Sure. So for Xbox um, and Microsoft, their gaming revenue rose about sixteen percent over the past year to three point six billion. Um, that three point six billion is compared to five point six billion for Sony. So Xbox is operating at a smaller scale. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, hardware was the fastest growing segment given the recent Series X and S launch. The hardware revenue rose one hundred sixty six percent year over year um, to about seven hundred million. And then similar to to PlayStation, like it's the content and services that are and likely always will be the primary revenue generator. And that segment. Um, you know, it was basically flat. It's all like 2% growth to 2.9 billion. Um, you know, that's pretty unsurprising given tough COVID comps and the delays of games like Halo Infinite. Um, but there still is some nuance under the hood with with uh, Xbox. And so, you know, if we look over the past year, their third-party sales have declined, but their first-party sales in Xbox Game Pass are growing. And really, like, with... With Sony, like their strategy just hinges upon um, like building those that first party content and kind of selling it in more of the traditional model. Um, but Xbox is taking a very different orthogonal approach with the subscription strategy with Game Pass that underpins like their entire long term vision of of where they want to go, and it's the most important metric to keep an eye on. Um, unfortunately, it's not disclosed often, but it's likely in the twenty five million ish range. Um, and a while back, it was reported that Game Pass missed subscriber growth goals for Microsoft's fiscal year, and it only grew 37% year over year, uh, which is still, you know, fine. And so really, like my take and even kind of comparing like these two companies is that Xbox was always going to underperform PlayStation in terms of console sales this generation. That's something that we've written about like pretty extensively in Master of the Meta. Um, but Game Pass, like it still is 
really interesting and it's the most important future catalyst of the business and frankly it's probably the most consumer friendly deal in all of gaming right now and it's one of those things that you know similar to a netflix growth is going to be pretty lumpy just as different you know triple a hits release um and it takes time to acquire studios then have those studios produce content um so you know scaling is going to be lumpy and take time uh but I mean, Game Pass is still in a really good spot to grow more popular over the coming years, and mainly just because of how good of a value it already is and is going to continue being for consumers. And so, I mean, these companies are really succeeding in their own ways, um, and demand for consoles is high everywhere. (laughs) And, you know, this this latest generation is is just getting started. Um, You know, Xbox, you know, it's just looking to capture as many subscribers as possible from as many devices as possible. And even though, um, you know, Xbox is shipping half the number of units as PlayStation, I actually think that they have the larger long-term vision and potential opportunity. Um, And both are going to win. PlayStation is going to, you know, continue to probably dominate console. But as the industry continues to evolve, similar as we saw with Nintendo, who just kind of stayed in its lane, companies who tend to just stay in their lanes become more become more niche. And so I, I do expect, like, PlayStation is going to continue to win. It's just going to become more niche and kind of siloed itself in in the process. And Game Pass, if they can execute well and pull that off, that actually is, like, a potentially more, like, industry, like, moving kind of um, service that can be a really big deal and maybe one day it'll take uh, several years but maybe xbox becomes larger than playstation as a result just from doing something completely different Um, but you know if that really clicks and succeeds i don't really expect playstation to sit still either and so they might you know do some more subscription offerings themselves that are that are a bit different but um, really it's interesting to see just because in the past these these two like companies have pretty much had the same strategy with minor differences, but we're getting to a point now where they have like very different approaches to where they see their businesses going long term, and they both can win at it. I think mm-hmm. it's interesting um, to think about how with with Game Pass and educating the consumer, conditioning the consumer on subscription and access to many games, etc. Um, it it probably positions Microsoft in a spot that is highly differentiated from Sony in terms of its ultimate potential because of Azure, right? Like I think like I've generally been bearish on, um, on, on cloud gaming being viable. I still don't think it's there, but I, you know, I believe in technology. And so I think we will get there at some point, right. In, in, in many ways, right. Like I think, you know, latency, speed of light limitations, etc. Like we still have to figure out a bunch of stuff. And I don't know if the experience will ever be, you know, as good as a next-gen console or a a gaming pc um but i do think we will have you know eventually a lot of the um a lot of the gaming activity happening there and if if xbox is conditioning its users on you know pay a subscription and get access to a bunch of games and they also happen to be who has azure um they are setting the stage for something that sony can't beat them at which is the infra right and um Ultimately, if that business hits, that's infinitely more scalable than, you know, the first party studio business, right? Which is always going to be like an M&A type business and there's very little scalability on human capital, right? Um, And so I get the, I think, I think I get it as like a long-term positioning thing and um, basically the, 
the option bet that's baked into that model, assuming they can eventually figure out the infra side of the, the, the cloud computing game. Mm, all right, interesting. So I'm looking at the time and we're 45 minutes in. Uh, okay. And I'm wondering if it makes sense to like still start the third topic. Um, and actually, I think we're gonna we're gonna keep it for another time, so we can we can take some time to discuss discuss Ubisoft and Activision Blizzard, and then we can call it an episode. And then I'll, I'll keep my my play to earn doesn't necessarily have to be fun to, for 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 another episode. Um, so Ubisoft, Aaron, you wanna you wanna walk us through it? Yeah. So for those of you who haven't noticed, Ubisoft's market cap has been cut in half this year. And the stock is basically trading to what it was in 2017. So it's not as if Ubisoft has been crushing it lately. And I don't think these earnings are, you know, a testament to that either. Um, and, you know, kind of those market cap difficulties uh, exist for good reason. A couple of years ago, around the launch of Ghost Recon Breakpoint, it was pretty obvious that Ubisoft had live ops issues and it had to reorg in order to solve for those problems. Last year, cultural issues were front and center, which led to a bunch of turnover and they had to do even more reorganization. Um, and that, of course, means that the company isn't firing in all cylinders when there's turmoil in the company. And between the two of those and delays that came from them, plus just COVID in general, um, it's just led to less belief in the company's ability to execute. And to be fair... Ubisoft, it, they still make good games, and and some of them are, you know, they hit hard. They sell well. For example, Assassin's Creed Valhalla is crushing it, and Far Cry 6 is charting ahead of Far Cry 5. Um, however, when it comes to new initiatives like um, digging deeper into free-to-play and building ecosystems around um, their, their best IP and now perhaps even blockchain games, um, you know, people who are looking at this business are just more skeptical. And I wrote last quarter that expectations are pretty low and all Ubisoft needs to do is just deliver on what it said it would do. It doesn't even need to outperform what it said it would do. It just needs to do what it said it would do. And it hasn't really. And so, you know, look at this quarter. I mean, the numbers are what they are. They're not even really that interesting enough to really like dig into them. And what's more interesting is just that like the Division Heartland was delayed. Roller Champions, which has been talked about forever, was delayed. Rocksmith Plus has been delayed. The Prince of Persia remake has been delayed. Um, the Ghost Recon Frontline free-to-play game test was delayed. And I don't even know if they mentioned it this quarter, but like the Skull and Bones has been like regularly delayed for like a couple years now so ubisoft just hasn't been able to sort out its operational issues in a way that leads to things getting consistently done and again it's hard a lot of companies regularly face delays that's just part of being in the industry covid has made it worse um and it's you know almost always better to delay than to ship a lackluster game but you know it does kind of reek of a pattern at this point. And so I'll, I guess I'll just kind of end that rant with what I said last quarter, like expectations are low. They just need to deliver. Um, so far <laughs> they haven't been able to, but if they can just for once do what they say they're going to do, um, it'll, it'll spark more belief in the company's ability to execute. People will start pricing it more optimistically too. Um, and they'll just be in a, a better spot in a bunch of different ways. Hmm. Because they make good games, right? It's just too slow, I guess. Yeah, I mean, for the for the most part, and I think, um, I mean, a lot of it just comes to do with like the industry has changed, and therefore, like these companies must change too. And so, yeah, they're getting into free to play. 
but they haven't really shown like an ability to execute and win in free to play. Um, they're, you know, they've, they struggled with live ops like a couple of years ago and it took them a couple of years to really figure it out. And now Assassin's Creed Valhalla is doing well, but they should have been figuring this out two years ago. And so I think, um, yeah, I think there's just some hesitation that they're not figuring out what they need to figure out fast enough. But yeah, I mean, I, I like some of the games. I like the Assassin's Creed franchise. I've thought about, you know, poking around Far Cry 6 for the heck of it. But um, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's kind of a nasty pattern of delays at this point. Hmm. Yeah, I, I thought this uh, this iteration of Assassin's Creed was the best one in a long time. Um, I remember having a lot of fun with Black Flag. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think I'd had much fun in any of them since then. Um, and then Far Cry 6 was... It was pretty cool. I uh, finished it, I don't know, last week, week before. It was fun. Very Far Cry, mm-hmm. right? Like, kind of, you know, how that game is going to go. It's, uh, you know, big, big yeah. open world game, and you just do the same thing over and over, but the story was captivating, and it was really cool getting... Um, I forgot the name of the guy that plays uh, Gus Frigg, right? But, um, he's a, yeah, yeah. you know, good actors and stuff. It was fun. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, they're so formulaic in their their game types. You know exactly what you're getting to every time you want to play Far Cry or Assassin's Creed, Um, which is you know, you know, it's kind of like so. I mean, like I don't want to use this analogy too hard, but some people it's it's just like the junk food that you keep on going back to. Like you know exactly what it's gonna be, uh, and you love it. Um, It's like Call of Duty for me, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, everyone has their their video game vice subway. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting to think about that though, in the context, like I think a, a critique that we see in uh, traditional like movie and, and series, right. Is um, a, a certain concern with the lack of innovation where, for example, it makes much more sense for Amazon to buy MGM than for them to try to, you know, pour that same money into their own stuff. Although they're certainly spending a lot on original development, but the notion being that, you know, if you're a Marvel or a DC or, you know, an, you know MGM that the franchise values are so high that it's kind of like, look, just pay the multiple for that thing, create some spinoff properties and just keep churning out that formula over and over again, instead of trying to innovate on the IP. Um, and we see it on, on, on games too, right? And I think it's interesting to see it in the context of modern warfare, bringing it back. Although like, I love the game. It was fantastic, but still like bringing back IP or the Assassin's Creed, which is, you know, remarkably consistent. Although this time the skill trees and whatnot provided some level of innovation. Um, and same with Far Cry, right? I mean, there's just, especially I think with, with um, new hardware and the, the push to have those games be marquee in terms of graphics and open world and all that comes with it is those development budgets get pushed up so much that there's a lot of risk aversion on innovating um, around the core loop, right? Uh, the same way that we're seeing with how movies are getting made. Mm-hmm. I'm still a consumer of both the movies and the game. But I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I think that's smart. Um, and, you know, IP is powerful. Sequels are here to stay. And it seems like a lot of the innovation is... I mean, you do see innovation in new games, like, of course, from new studios and all of that. Like, it still is out there. But from the people who have these IPs, it seems like the innovation is more... It's even about, like, less in-game. And it's more about, like, how do you build ecosystems? Like, if you have... I mean, Call of Duty is probably, like, the, the better example of it. Like, they had their Call of Duty formula down. Uh, but in order to 
to grow that IP, they realized they needed to do some other things, and that's where Warzone came in, that's where Call of Duty Mobile came in, and they're still going to continue doing some stuff there. And that's where the innovation has come in that's, that leads to just more of, like, business upside. Um, and Ubisoft, it's, you know, it's going to be the same thing. It's just people have less um, conviction that they'll be able to pull off what, what Activision did. Um, and even with Assassin's Creed, like, it has been very formulaic and... I enjoy it. It's fun. Um, but there's, you know, the, the talks of like Assassin's Creed infinity, I think, which is like their code name for like where the, the franchise is going to go. We don't, we don't know that much about it formally. My guess though, is that like, it's really just gonna, it's going to like really like lean hard into kind of the sequel model and just like make it more like the business model of like, instead of having like a new flagship game come out every year, every other year, it's just going to be like, you're just going to play Assassin's Creed. Um, and you know, ever so often, every quarter, whenever they're going to like release new content for you. Um, and then it's just going to be much more like the live ops driven model. Um, and if they do it there, we'll, we'll probably see it occur in other places, but then they'll also build like mobile experiences around it. And the division that's probably going to try to do what call of duty has done with free to play games, spinoff games, it's not going to work the same way. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty certain. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I see more of the, the so-called innovation coming from, even though it's really more like business model innovation than true game design innovation, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Talking about Activision Blizzard, let's talk about their numbers and their results. So revenue was pretty much exactly as expected. Earnings per share slightly higher than expected. Uh, one thing that people were apparently disappointed by was their Q4 outlook. Uh, which was less. And then finally, one thing I took away, I, I, I pulled up a, a quick review on, on, on their, their performance. So one is like that the potential risks of all the lawsuits that they face, but also that the CEO, Bobby Kotick, he's new. So he his wage or his salary was expected to be $155 million. Uh, and this was like salary plus, you know, the like stock, stock options and that stuff. <laughs> and it dropped down to, $62,500. So that is one significant cut. Uh, uh that funny. Anyway, Aaron, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's such a weird time at Activision Blizzard. There's a mix of, you know, good and bad things going on. I mean, you know, for one, obviously, like creating and enacting solutions for all the cultural issues that the company has faced is still very much front and center, um, which is good and makes sense. They're, they seem to be taking it seriously and it was announced, you know, I mean, what you said that Bobby Kotick is going to be taking an immense pay cut until that is sorted out. I, you know, it's kind of hard to speculate on the details without actually being inside of it. So I, I won't, but it's good to see like, at least they seem to be taking it seriously and are, are enacting a lot of different policies um, to improve. Um, on the bright side, the results were actually okay for the quarter. And you saw, we, we saw slight growth from last year under the hood, Call of Duty Mobile, saw net bookings grow 40%. Blizzard saw 20% growth because of the Diablo 2 resurrected launch. And even Kang grew um, like 22% year over year because of Candy Crush. And it seems like the ad business is growing pretty well there, despite um, all the IDFA shenanigans that have happened. Um, so the business, like it's, it's held up. Um, however, as always, what matters more is looking forward. And this is where 
more things start to fall apart. So in particular, Diablo 4 and Overwatch 2 were delayed, and this stacks on top of some of the issues World of Warcraft has been having with competition. Um, and if you kind of zoom out, like, it's not surprising, right? Like, you know, we've been saying for a while that it's pretty obvious that when your when your culture and your, you know, and workplace environment is in turmoil and important leaders leave, things don't get done <laughs> on the same schedule at the same caliber. And both, you know, the leads of Diablo 4 and Overwatch 2 left in recent months. Plus, we just saw that one of the newly appointed Blizzard co-leads, Jen O'Neill, she just left. So things are still pretty choppy over there. And that's a big deal. So 2022 was scheduled to be another step change increase for the business as certain franchises like Overwatch get revived and they implement that Call of Duty model in more places like Diablo. Um, and now that's getting pushed back here, which means probably other things they're working on are also getting pushed back even further. So, you know, that doesn't mean that the business is doomed, but it does like go to show that like, yeah, like the culture problem is like they do matter and they've had a very real impact on the business when it hasn't been handled with care. So I think they'll be fine longer term. All of like a lot of the issues they're having, they'll find their footing. It'll take work. They need to continue like, you know, setting the right policies, holding people accountable, etc. Um, and I think, you know, they'll execute on what they said they will. Um, and, you know, people probably have more faith in an Activision Blizzard to do that than an Ubisoft. But these things do take a while to resolve. And it doesn't mean that everything is going to be perfect again. You know, World of Warcraft is facing challenges. Overwatch was pretty poorly managed, in my opinion. Like the last hero that came out in that game was in 2020. And so if the new game is getting pushed to 2023, that'll be three years between um, like when the last piece of like new content really came out for the mm. Overwatch franchise, which is like a huge, like, like they dropped the ball uh, with, yeah. with Overwatch. Um, so yeah, it still is a, a pretty fantastic business in the big scheme of things, but a lot of the issues that we've known about now for a while, it's it's kind of finally caught up to the business, and now they mm. got to work through those realities. Yeah, I mean, it sucks as a consumer because you know certainly excited for D four and things like that. Uh, well, certainly D four more than Overwatch too. I'm not big Overwatch guy. Um, I, look, it all comes down to how much faith you have on that senior leadership team sort of getting it, right? And um, I understand sort of why you're optimistic, Aaron. Um, it's hard for me to be as optimistic. Like, I, and again, right, like good business. I like the business. I like the franchises. I'm a consumer of, you know, my favorite games, like probably two or three games that I, I can, you know, trace back to Activision or Blizzard. Um, so certainly, uh, you know, a, a, a fan of what they've developed. But um I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like um, like the issues that are surfacing now, like as you're correctly pointing out, are things that you've all been talking about for a long time. And I think, you know, in sort of the investor and gaming circle, we've been hearing about these things for a long time. Um, and it, it feels like it has kept going downhill. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there was some Twitter chatter yesterday around how some people in their own team internally found out about the delays or about, you know, some stuff like on the earnings call. And it seems like, you know, like still Oof. like deep in the middle, like I get it. Right. Cause you're in the middle of a crisis and it's like super hard to keep people informed. So like maybe it's like unfair to sort of pile that criticism onto them, but it feels like a lot of the issues in that culture stem from transparency and respect to employees and a certain way of conducting business that is less 
financialized and more humane because like yeah of course they beat earnings or like they did fine on earnings they always do fine on earnings and then like they say we beat earnings but we fired i don't know 10 percent of the workforce like, like there's always something like that with them right they always make their numbers and there's always like another piece of news and with this time again it seems like yeah they made numbers um but a bunch of these very fundamental things came out to the own team internally when they went out externally and they have made missteps by perhaps not um having the right culture between senior leadership team and junior leadership team um by having the right transparency by having the right involvement by truly fostering that activision community of employees right um and they missed it again yesterday it seems right i don't know for a fact right i'm just going off of what's on twitter but you know it wouldn't that doesn't seem like twitter is wrong on this one um and so, you know, is it really easy for me to be hopeful when the first step is like, yeah, you know, Bobby took a pay cut. That's cool. But I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think Bobby is living off his salary at this point. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it, it, it seems like when it comes to actually people and culture and all the things that we want them to, to change, um, that it wasn't there yet. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll circle all the way back and say that, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of the franchises. I look forward to playing the games. I know people there. Like, I have so much respect for, like, everyone that I personally know there. Um, and it is a manager team that has delivered, you know, on multiple things multiple times in the past. And so, um, you know, fingers crossed for them. Um, would certainly love to see more amazing things coming out of that structure. Um, I just don't know when I'm going to flip the switch between bracing for more and being optimistic. I'm not ready to flip it just yet. Yeah, I don't think the story is over. Um, I guess just to kind of reframe, like where I said I was optimistic, I still, I still think that this is a very good business, and it'll continue to be just by the nature of just like how high margin and how many people engage with these IPs, and the fact that these IPs are going to be super long lasting. But yeah, the momentum of this business has just been sucked out in a pretty, pretty critical way, and these issues don't get resolved overnight. So, um, yeah, even though they hit numbers, like who cares? Like that, that's not what's like most interesting about this. It's more the fact that like, yeah, their problems caught up with them. They're still sorting it out and it's going to take a really long time to get everything back, um, to where they were hoping it, you know, to be. So mm -hmm. unfortunate, unfortunate. All right. That was it for the earnings reports. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have time to dig into my play-to-earn case, so we'll have to keep that uh, for a future episode. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you, Aaron and Carlos, for your great insights. This is really fun. Dear listener, thank you for making it to this point. If you want to join the conversation, feel free to join our Discord. And for more content like this, you can uh, find that on navic.co. With that, we are out and we hope to be speaking with you in the next episode. Cheers. Thanks, Carlos.